listening to a sermon from Hebron Baptist Church, a church in the northern Kentucky Cincinnati area that's committed to making disciples who make disciples. We want our love for God to be evident in our lives and for the Word of God to bear fruit as we go on mission across the street and around the globe. We hope after hearing this message, you'll connect with us on our website at hebronbaptist.org and visit our campus, not far from I-275 in Hebron, some Sunday morning. And now, here's a message from God's perfect, life-changing Word. Tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, Well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. I just, I start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No, no, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house Anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes. Yes, that's it. All right. Well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most We find most people can, uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, here, you're there. Stop it! <laughs> I'm sorry? Stop it! Stop it? Yes, S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. <laughs> so, what are you saying? You know, it's funny, I I, I say two simple words and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine, this is English. Stop it! So, I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds sounds frightening. (laughs) Yes. Then stop it! I can't. I mean, it's been with me no, since no, childhood. No, no, no. We, 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 we don't go there. Just, just stop. So I should just stop being afraid of being buried alive in a box. You got it. Good go. Well, it's only been, it's only been three minutes, so that will be um, uh, three dollars. So. So why is that so funny? I love that. I've, I've always loved that sketch. I'm a big Bob Newhart fan. I love deadpan humor. But there's something about that sketch that has always struck me as funny. And, I, and, and almost everybody I show it to, they always laugh. And, and it's, it's interesting when you consider why that's so funny. It's funny because of how ludicrous it is that someone would go to a psychologist or a therapist and they would pour their hearts out, and all, that would, all they would say in terms of advice is, stop, just, just quit, just quit doing that, stop, like it was that easy, right? Uh, who, who goes to a therapist and hasn't thought to just stop doing whatever it is that's bothering them? Nobody, you know, surely she's thought of that and tried, 
and it's not worked out. It's a ludicrous request of somebody who is paralyzed by fear for you to just say, stop it. (laughs) It's not helpful. Today, we look at our text, um, and God asks of us a very similar, potentially ludicrous command. In 1 John 2.15, he says, do not love the world. We say, oh, okay, fine. Okay, I just won't love the world. That's problem solved, right? Well, I want to look today at just, first of all, how ludicrous that is at, at, at first glance. And so I want to talk about what it would take for me personally to, to follow that command. First of all, I need to be convinced that it's even possible. That, that I could actually stop loving the world I mean, look at the world. Look what's in it. Look at the people in the world. Look at the stuff in the world. There's a lot of beautiful people in the world. There's a lot of great stuff. There's a lot of really good food. Amen? There's a lot of good stuff in the world, and there's a lot of people that we love in the world. How on earth can we stop loving it? The second thing I need to be convinced of is that that's actually what God's saying. That doesn't seem to be like the kind of thing God would tell me to do, to stop loving something. Perhaps we, maybe we misunderstand that. Maybe there's another way to to understand that phrase, to translate that phrase, to interpret that phrase. Maybe we might just, we might have it wrong. We might misunderstand it. So I need to be convinced that not loving the world in the sense that I'm thinking of not loving the world is actually something God wants me to do. And and the third thing that you'd really ultimately have to convince me of is that the world wasn't what it seemed and that if I knew it as it really was, I wouldn't love it to the degree that I do. So first you need to show me that it's something that's possible for me to do at all. Secondly, you need to show me that um, that's actually what God is telling me to do. And lastly, you'd have to explain to me You'd have to show me that the world wasn't as awesome as I thought it was, okay? Those are the three doubts that we're going to look at today. And by the grace of God, his word puts those doubts to rest. So then, let's read 1 John 2, 12 through 17 together. This is going to be our text this morning. I'm going to read it out loud. Uh, You can read it quietly. Uh, 1 John 2, starting in verse 12. It says, I am writing to you, little children... Since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Let's commit our time to the Lord together. Father, help us to understand your word, to understand what it means to love the world and to not love the world. And Father, we pray that we be obedient when we're finished. 
When we finish walking through your word, we pray that it would be a light into our, our lives and uh, it would show us the way as you promised to. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing we're going to look at, uh, if you're taking notes, uh, point number one, why you can space not love the world. So why you can not love the world. In other words, how you're able to not love the world. We look at the first three verses uh, of our passage. We see three different groups of people. And the most readily uh, apparent understanding of those three groups of people is that they are children, fathers, and young men. But what's interesting as you read the descriptors as to what they're actually doing, or have done rather, um, children are described as people who have their sins forgiven on account of his name. What We certainly don't want to say that all children have all their sins forgiven on account of his name, because not all children have turned from their sins and trusted in Christ. Some children have their sins still on them, needing repentance and atonement. So clearly he's not referring to all children. Not to mention the fact that the entirety of the book of 1 John is addressed to Christians, it's addressed to believers for the purpose of giving them confidence in their faith. Not in their faith, but in the object of their faith. So then what we see in these three groups of people, the children, the fathers, and the young men, we see three stages of spiritual development. The children then are new Christians, or perhaps they've been Christians for a while, but they've never been discipled, they've never been helped, they've never been taught, they don't know all the, 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 the bits of the faith. The, the fathers then, um, which by the way, when this is a category broader than chronological, we're not just talking about men, we're not just talking about fathers, we're talking about Christians who are mature in their faith, who've been discipled, who've been Christians for years, decades even, right? And that applies to both men and women, that those who are, are mature in their faith, that's the group that, that John is referring to. And then last group, the young men, same thing. These are people who are in the midst of the battle of faith. These are the people who, whose lives look more like a battlefield than they do like a family meal. So we have these three groups of people, they, they describe three stages of spiritual development. But there's a, there's a really comforting thing. And this is, this is where we get, we understand the ability to not love the world. All three of these groups, and they, they appear twice in, in, those, in these verses, all three of these groups are described as people who have already become Christians. These are already Christians. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you notice the grammar, if you're a grammar uh, Nazi, uh, what, we're what, here, what we have here is the perfect tense. What that means is, is it's something that has taken place already that is abiding results. So, um, I am writing to you little children since your sins have been forgiven. They were forgiven in the past and they are forgiven still. The children are people who are forgiven. The second group, I write to you fathers because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. For John, to say that you know God is to say that you are a Christian. To say that you're born again, John says in chapter 3 of his gospel. So the fathers then have come to know, past tense, the one who was from the beginning. The young men have conquered the evil one. Past tense, abiding results. These are people who have conquered 
the evil one. What an encouraging word right before God drops the bomb, do not love the world, on us. Right before he gives us this seemingly impossible task, he encourages his readers that in fact, they already have all that they need for life and God. It's good news. It's an encouraging word. Uh, if any of you have, have read or have watched the Harry Potter movies, there's uh, really a, a, a great scene in The Prisoner of Azkaban. And I, I'm going to nerd out for just a minute, so y'all, y'all just bear with me, okay? I won't give you all the details. I'm, I, I love the books. But there's a moment where Harry is, is by this lake, and, and his, who finds out is his godfather is being attacked by these, these uh, uh, dementors. They're just nasty-looking black wraiths. So they're really spooky, kind of a skull face, terrifying. Um, and there's this spell that Harry can do. And I'm not condoning magic. You don't hear me say that. I'm not condoning sorcery. It's a story. Uh, but there's a spell that you can do that makes them go away. But Harry's learning this spell, but he hasn't quite mastered it yet. And so he tries it, but he just can't, he can't get them to go away. The spell is not working. And then he looks up and he sees this sorcerer on the other side. He can't see who they are, but they're casting this spell for him. And it's the most powerful version of it he's ever seen. And, and all the dementors are rushed away and they're shooed away and they're gone. And he spends much of the rest of the book or the movie trying to figure out who that person was on the other side of the lake. Well, spoiler alert, uh, towards the end of the book, he actually travels through time and you discover that it was actually him who cast the spell to make the Dementors go away. And it was actually the confidence of, paradoxically so, it was the confidence of knowing that he'd done it before that allowed him to do it later. That seems very paradoxical, but here's the thing. What he discovers is that confidence is a major part of that spell. If you're not confident in the spell, in the, the good sort of thought that you're supposed to have in your mind when you're casting it, you can't do it, which is why it's a spell in the books that very few people can actually master because they can't, they don't have the confidence to do it. They, it's almost like you have to have done it before and able to be able, in order to be able to do it again. Well, you see where this is going. God is telling us in, John, in 1 John chapter 2 that in fact, the thing that you're afraid you can't do, in fact, has already been done. The idea of not loving the world, the power, the ability to, to turn from the things of this world that are so attractive is actually built into you because of your relationship with God. And it doesn't matter if you are a five-second-old Christian or if you're a 50-year-old Christian. God has given you what you need to follow Him in all of life. So we can be comforted in each of these three groups. For children in their faith, for many of and I don't mean children necessarily, although a lot of children in their faith happen to be children in real life, in, in their age. But even if you were a young Christian, you might think to yourself, I'm just not able to do these spiritual things yet. I'm still learning the Bible. I don't know all the stories in it yet. But the encouragement to you is this. If you are indeed in Christ... He has empowered you by His Holy Spirit to conquer. To conquer. What a strong word. Your sins, children in faith, are forgiven on account of God's name. 
Immediately, when you trust in Christ and turn from your sins, immediately, in the eyes of God, you are perfect in His eyes. He looks at you, and He sees perfection. Why? Because He sees His Son, Jesus, whose righteousness has been, big theological word, imputed on you, given to you, counted against you, or for you. So you have everything you need from day one. What an incredible power that is. An incredible encouragement to you if you were young in your faith. For the fathers, for, the, for those who have, been, who have been Christians for decades or years even, um, and I find that it's not always, not always if you've been a Christian for 30 years, does it put you in this category, nor if you've only been a Christian for five or six, does it put you out of this category? Because I've known a lot of people who've been, who have been a, a Christian for five or six years who far surpassed me, myself in maturity. So this is a function of, of, how, of how God has moved in your life. But you fathers, you who have either, you, you adults in the faith, you, you have been Christians for years, you might think to yourself that the best years of your Christian walk are behind you. But I assure you, they are not. You may think that your work with God, for God, is done, but what John is saying is that it's just started. It says, fathers, you have known the one who was, you have come to know and are coming to know the one who was from the beginning. Believers, you don't arrive until the end. And it's not the end because you're still here. And Jesus isn't quite yet. So you're not at the end. You think you are, you are not. You are meeting and getting to know the one who was from the beginning, whose personality is so vast, so inexhaustible that it's a person for whom you never run out of things to say. You know, all of us have had friends that way or, or, or situations where you're hanging out with someone for a long enough time that you actually run out of stuff to talk about and your relationship becomes stale. God never does that because He is inexhaustible. What good news for us who have been Christians our whole lives because we've only begun to know the Father, the one that we will worship for eternity. And then that third group, those of us who fall in this category of young men, again, this isn't just men, this is men and women together, but those of us who are fighting the battle, who every day we're waging war against sin in our lives, there's an encouragement here for you, because at this point in our lives, we, we, we feel exhausted. And sometimes we say to ourselves, you know, I, I've just fought enough. I'm tired. And you know that tomorrow is another day of fighting. It is exhausting. But the good news is that the battle has already been won. You're going to win. We've read the end of the book. We read it just a minute ago. What happens at the end? Every tribe, tongue, and nation surrounding the throne, worshiping God, he never lets us go. We'll endure to the end. That is a good news and it's a great encouragement. And also, when you think to yourself, I've done enough, and you look at the world and you say, I deserve this. I've worked for it and now it should be mine. I tell you, it's not. What you're working for is so much better. So much better than the thing that is right in front of you. 
So first I said that I would need to be convinced that I was even capable of obeying the command to not love the world. But secondly, I said, I need to be convinced that what God is saying here is indeed what God is saying here. So the second, if if our first point is why you can, space, not love the world, the second point is why you cannot, one word, love the world. In other words, why you may not, why you're not allowed, why the command exists. Verse 15 and 16 spell out that love for the world is actually antithetical or against the love of the Father. Let's talk for a minute about what John means when he says love for the world. Now, if we think about the books that we've read that John wrote, we think about a a phrase where love and the world come together. What's the first one that comes to our mind? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You think to yourself, so God loves the world. Why on earth would he ask us not to? Well, I want to explain a little bit what John 3.16 is saying in the Greek. So when John speaks about the world, when he uses the word cosmos, where we get cosmos, same word, When he speaks that word, when he writes that word, what he means is the world. And this is a helpful thing to remember. What John means is the world in rebellion against God. Right? So this is is God's creation marred by sin, separated from God because of sin. That's what John means by the world. So when John said God so loved the world, he's saying God loved the world, separated from him by sin. Now comes the issue. How can can God love the world in a way that we cannot love the world? Well, I would say there are two ways in which God can love the world in a way that we cannot. The first is that God can love the world without being affected by it. Jesus can put on flesh, dwell among us, and never sin. James chapter 1 tells us that God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, right? This isn't an issue for God. Imagine a disease that affects the entire human race. A disease disease something like rabies, right? Rabies, what it does in a person is it actually creates in you, because of the spasms that happen when you swallow, whether you're a, 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 a human being or a dog or a cat or whatever, rabies does is it causes a behavior, a desire to run from water called hydrophobia because it creates that pain and those spasms in your throat from drinking it, it causes a natural behavior to run from water, which, by the way, is what? It's the thing you actually need. It's a self-defeating disease. The human race has a very similar disease that is spread for every single person on earth. That disease is sin, and the symptoms of that disease are the thought that God Oh, sorry, in in Genesis chapter 3, when the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, are in the garden, they um, they're they're told to eat from this tree and not from this tree. Uh, They're told to eat from the tree of life, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when, when Eve looks at the tree, she desires it, and Satan makes a point, the serpent in the garden makes a point, he says, God told you not to eat it because he knows that if you eat it, you'll become like him. 
So the serpent puts in the mind of the woman, she incepts in her mind, that she could be like God. She hadn't ever considered that before. But now it occurs to her, maybe I could be like God. That is the disease of sin, ultimately. What sin does in all of our lives is to tell us the lie that we can be like God. And we give up our entire lives after that goal. We want to be our own king. We want to be sovereign over our own lives. We want to have our own way. We want to have all the things. But that's God's and not ours. And that disease affects the entire human race. But here's the thing. God is not... Excuse me. God is immune to that disease because he already is God. Let me say that again. God is not inclined to think he can become God because he already is. He's not tempted to be who he is not because he is everything already. So God is not tempted by the world so that God can love the world in a pure way without falling into it. Whereas we, when we love the world, we start to love the things in the world. We start to be attracted to the world. And we start to follow the world. The second way in which God can love the world and we can't is he's so much better at it. John says, no greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. How many of you have laid down your life for anybody? I haven't. You're still here, so you haven't died for anybody. Only God has done that. So if we try to love the world in, or on God's behalf, let's say, God loves the world, then we're going to love the world. So we try to love the world on God's behalf, we're going to fail at it miserably because God is far better at it than we. Here's what loving the world looks like, because it's a little confusing for us. What loving the world looks like is giving in to the lie that the serpent spoke in the garden, the other lie. That God doesn't care what you want. We second guess God's motive. Satan is trying to tell Eve that God is trying to keep this knowledge and wisdom to himself maliciously. And so he's saying, quit letting God be selfish and go after what God is taking from you. Well, here's, here's what happens when... When, um, when we live into that lie, and here's what happened when Eve lived into that lie, and Adam lived in that lie. They took one bite, and immediately they realized what they had done. They realized the broken relationship that they had just created with God. It wasn't what they thought it was. We'll get to that in a second. So what I'm trying to tell you is that God is not trying to keep us from enjoying ourselves. God was not trying to keep Adam and Eve from enjoying themselves. He was trying to keep them from evil that would destroy them from the inside out. So God is not trying to keep you from enjoying yourself by making you abstain from sex outside of marriage, to abstain from pornography, or, or, or to be, to say, God doesn't try to keep you from recognition from others or from enjoying the things that you have earned in life. Those are not God's desires. God's desires is to save you from a lesser love. To preserve you for a better one. 
And we'll see in, verse, in our third point. So we've seen first, uh, I, needed, I needed to be convinced that God, uh, that I could not love the world. Secondly, I needed to be convinced that God was actually saying to me, do not love the world. Lastly, I had to see that the world is actually not the thing I once loved. And that's exactly what the text tells us. In verse 17, it tells us that this world and the things in this world are passing away. So our third point then is why you would not love the world. Or maybe why you wouldn't want to love the world. We open our eyes. The Lord opens our eyes. And when John again and again talks about light that illuminates the darkness, John is saying in 1 John and in the gospel that God is showing us the world for what it really is. Not the thing we thought it was. There's a couple of things we see. One, we see, uh, it says that the world is passing away. That means the things that we love in the world won't be around forever. And the second thing we see is that, if, that yes, they are passing away, but also in this moment, the satisfaction that we get from chasing after the things of this world is fleeting. That was Adam and Eve's experience in Genesis chapter 3. They took a bite of the fruit and immediately they realized they're, they're, they were naked and they hid from God. They'd never done that before. It never even occurred to them that they were naked. God was happy with the way they were. But now they realize that God is not going to be happy with them anymore. And that thing, that fruit, that was a delight to the eyes, good for food perhaps, and able to give them wisdom. Good food and wisdom are good things. Let's not forget that. It's easy for us to point to sin to, to, and, and say, that's a bad thing. But you know, most sin, quite frequently, a sin is a good thing done in a wrong way or with a wrong spirit or to a wrong extent. And that's what Adam and Eve learned and that's what we learn um, because the things of this earth are passing away. It has been said, and you've probably heard this before, that sin takes you farther than you want to go keeps you there longer than you wanted to stay and costs you more than you want to pay. If you haven't heard that, I'm going to say it again. Because I think this is really helpful. Sin takes you farther than you wanted to go, keeps you there longer than you wanted to stay and costs you more than you ever wanted to pay. Here's what this looks like, the fleeting nature of sin in our lives. We make excuses for ourselves and it's small at first. Perhaps there's an ad on the side of a web page of a woman or a man, depending on um, your, your, uh, whether you're a man or a woman. Um, there's a woman or a man, and, and, that, and there's just a, a glance, just for a moment. We, just, we don't click anything, we just look. And we think, oh, I, I'm not going to click it. It's not going to affect me. I'll be fine. I'll just look at it for a second. And then, you know, when, when my wife or, or when somebody walks by, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll scroll up the page, you know, and nobody will see. Just that once. But the truth is, we, if you've been through this sort of an addiction, you find that's how it starts. And the next thing you click on and you say, oh, but I won't stay here very long. I'll just look and see what it was about. And as soon as I figure out what it's about, then I'll get off the page. But it doesn't stop there either. It's a downhill slope. And it doesn't just apply to pornography. It applies to our lives. We, 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 we try out a sin. We're like, oh, I can stop whenever I want to. 
And we find that we cannot. It takes us farther. It's never satisfied. We always want to keep going. That's what the world is like. The things that continue to draw us toward them and away from God. So it it talks about the the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the the eyes is what I was just talking about. It talks about the lust of the flesh, the desires that, that we have within us. The excuses that we make, the craving to just feel better is not going to be satisfied with another drink. It's not going to be satisfied by just going to bed earlier and sleeping more and being lazier. That's not going to satisfy the desire to feel better. The the things that draw us away from God are not going to satisfy us to feel better. They're going to meet our our body's desires. And lastly, the, the pride in one's possessions, the text tells us. I see this working out in our lives this way. Working more and more overtime. Working harder. Does that make more money for our family? Sure, sure, I hope it does. I really do. But there's a point at which that drives our lives. And what's the cost? What's the cost of overworking? It costs time with our families. We can't get that time back, parents. It costs time with our wives or our husbands. We can't get that time back. Everything has an opportunity cost. And so I'm not saying working hard is a sin. What I'm saying is everything has a cost. And when we look at the cost, sometimes that helps us to know whether it is of the world or not. If it takes us away from God, it is not of the world. If it keeps us occupied too long, it is, not, it is of the world. And if it, if it costs us more than we want to pay, it is not from the Father, it is from the world. We run from these things. Again, we tell excuses to ourselves because of our status in life. Uh, I have needs. I, I deserve this. Or they should have it, or, or my children should have it better than I had it. Those that last one. Do we honestly think that we love our children more than God does? Do we honestly think that God... The father who, if we asked him for a stone or for bread, would never give us a stone. That God couldn't provide for our family if we didn't work all those extra hours. Now, some of us have to. I'm not saying that's sin. What I'm saying is, are you willing to pay the cost? Are you willing to pay the cost of looking longer at the image? Are you willing to pay the cost of growing close to a, to a friend of the opposite sex? Spending too much time with them alone or any time alone. Are you willing to pay that cost? The risk. That helps us to see what's of the world. See, God can love the world without being affected by it. But we cannot. We're drawn into it. So let that be a reminder then. And we got to the end of our text. It says, and God will... Verse verse 17... And the Lord, the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Perhaps you look at your life and you say, I'm not doing the will of God in my life. I look at my life and I don't see the strength that shows up in the first few verses of our text. I don't feel like I've conquered the evil one. I don't feel forgiven of my sins. Then perhaps... You've never trusted Christ in the first place, and if that's you, call out to Him. 
He will forgive you. Confess your sins and he will be faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. God is desirous of us to be confident in our salvation. Not to be confident if we aren't saved. Pastor Sean and I have been talking about 1 John lately and it's kind of interesting when we come at it, we, we, we were inclined to, to point out, to help people who aren't in Christ to see that they need Christ. But that's actually not the original point of 1 John. The point of 1 John is to encourage those who are already in Christ. And I pray that as we've looked at the Word, that, that you have been encouraged wherever you are in your walk of life. But for some of us, we look at this text and this doesn't apply. Not yet. But it can Because there is one, despite our unfaithfulness, despite our lack of doing the will of God, there is one who has come who always did the will of God. (laughs) Whose good works can be counted to you, can be a gift to you, so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see when you've not done the will of God. He sees one who did the will of God perfectly. And that one is Jesus Christ. He did the will of God in every way. He was tempted in every way like we are, and yet never sinned. What an incredible power he has. If we would call out to him and ask for forgiveness, he would come in to our lives via the Holy Spirit. The Bible calls it the Spirit of Christ, the very one who had the power over temptation in his own life, can enter your life and give you power over temptation. That you can have the confidence that comes in the first three verses. Whether you're a child, a father, or a young man, you can know that the Spirit of God lives within you and gives you that ability so that you can be faithful to the end and endure. Isn't that good news? So, if that's you, if you are a believer and you're discouraged, you think, I could never walk away from the world, I assure you, you can Do so in the strength of God today. But if you are not in Christ, if you've never believed, you've never followed Christ, you've never been honest about your sin before God and asked for forgiveness, do so today so that you can live, so you can waste another moment outside of the power of God in your life. So let's pray. Father, I pray. I pray that we have indeed been encouraged by your word this morning. I pray that children in their faith, that are young in their faith, uh, whether they're 8 or whether they're 80 and they're just new Christians, Father, I pray that they were encouraged to know that they have, their sins have been forgiven. Father, I pray for the, for the fathers among us, the uh, older Christians, Father, that have been Christians for a long time. I pray that they would know God, know you deeper, who is from the beginning and who is inexhaustible. And I pray for those of us who are battling now in our lives against sin. Lord, give them victory over sin in their lives. Let them see your power. But lastly, Father, those who don't fall in any of these categories because they've not been born again, draw them unto faith today. Help them to call out to you in repentance and faith and forgive them of their sins and cleanse them from unrighteousness, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Hebron Baptist Church. We pray as you have listened, the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart that you may faithfully follow Him. 
Most importantly, we hope that you've been drawn into a relationship with God. At Hebron, we believe that the gospel is the central message of the Bible. The gospel is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, and died for our sins. But he was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. The most appropriate response to hearing this good news is turning from sin and turning to Christ. Don't stay far from God. Instead, repent and believe in Christ and be brought into an intimate relationship with Him. If you would like more information about this life-changing decision, please contact us through our website at hebronbaptist.org or even better, come see us on a Sunday morning. May God bless you as you follow Him.